See if I can get your attention, and we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You all are just way, way off. You, you, eavesdropping doesn't pay off. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So it's been several weeks since we were uh, together on a Sunday night looking at just a, uh, maybe a pastor's Bible study, if you will. So, some time ago we started off talking about some different Sunday night topics that uh, some of you all would like to cover and some of you all would like to look into. And one of them had to do with distinctives as far as what makes us distinct as a Baptist church. So, several weeks ago, we looked at the idea of the, the, the picture of baptism and how baptism makes us distinct as a Baptist church. Then the last time we were together, we looked at the Bible and our stance and um, what we believe about the Bible and how we approach the Bible as being the authority and God's Word um, sets us apart from other faith denominations and other traditions. And so tonight, we are going to look at the distinctive of autonomy. Somebody tell me what does it mean to be autonomous or what is autonomy? You can spell that first. Okay, A U T O N O M Y. Okay. Not it's not going to matter if I spell it, okay? So autonomy. So what what does it mean to be autonomous? So if if one of the distinctions of the Baptist church is that we are autonomous. So this comes out of article 6 of the Baptist faith and message where it talks about the church. This is what it says. A New Testament church, the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. So what does that what does that mean for us when we think about that we are an autonomous church? All walks of life. Okay, all walks of life. All right. That we're not governed by someone else. We're not told what to do, how to do. Okay. Any other ideas? Okay, so. The definition of autonomy um, means to be free or means to be independent or not in subjection to something else. Kind of we are our own own governing authority, if you will. So the picture of autonomy says, okay, so as a local congregation, um, we hold that we are autonomous. Now, how does that differ from and we don't have to use specific names, but how does that differ then from other traditions or other denominations? Anybody have any idea how maybe some of the other ones work? Catholics have to answer the Pope. Yeah, that's right. So the Catholics, so you have an example of the Catholic Church where you have one Pope as the figurehead, and then down from the Popes you have, what's the next step below a Pope? A cardinal, and then what's the next step below a bishop? A cardinal, a bishop. Okay, and then what's below? What's below? Yeah, what's below a bishop? A rook. Nope. Close. That's chess. All right. So what's below a bishop? You have priest, right? And so you have this kind of a, and I don't mean pyramid in a derogatory stance, but you have a organizational structure, right? So you have the priest, and then the next level up is bishop, and the next level up will be the cardinals, and then the cardinals above them you have the pope. So you have an organizational structure, if you will. What what would be another denomination that would carry on some type of a organizational structure like? that. Methodist? Okay. 
Episcopalian? Presbyterians? Greek Orthodox? Greek Orthodox? Lutheran. Lutheran? Thank you. That, I'm like, what? Come on, Ronald. Help me out. Alright, so Lutherans, and so a lot of a lot of the denominations, even denominations in this town, and I'm not saying that's I'm not saying they're wrong, and I'm not saying they're bad, and I'm not trying to speak ill of them, but there is a distinction when you look around amongst other churches that even our evangelical churches, an evangelical just simply means that they believe that you know that God sent his son, his son died for us, and by by grace through faith we are saved, and all these things. And so even within evangelical churches, you will see other traditions and other denominations that have more of a mother church. And please don't think I'm trying to be derogatory. More of like a mother church organization. Alright? Now you come to the Baptists, specifically in our walk or our strain of Baptists, and we say we are autonomous. So the question is, is how does that make us distinctive? And even more so, where do we get that as a biblical concept? Because if somebody comes up to you and says, is the church you attend, is it autonomous? And you go, well, yes, we are. And they say, well, where do they get that from? Because all these other churches don't practice that. These other churches do practice that. So where do we get this from biblically? Now, I want to be from the very front end to say, there's other churches that I think are seeking to be faithful and obedient to God that see things differently. And I've told you from the very get-go, this isn't, this isn't a, an attempt to try to uh, slander or uh, be ill of anybody else. I think there's other brothers and sisters in Christ that really want to be faithful and serve the Lord. We just see things differently. So, where do we see things being Baptist and saying we are autonomous? So that is where that is why um, we're in First Corinthians chapter twelve. We're going to walk. What I'm, my hope is we're going to walk through four sets of scriptures. We're going to walk through First Corinthians twelve. We're going to walk through Ephesians five. We're going to walk through First Peter five, and then we're going to just uh, lightly touch on Revelation chapter two and chapter three. And what I want to try to put tonight tonight in front of you is a uh, more of a doctrinal foundation of where. The Baptist church gets its biblical concept of being autonomous. Now you may say, well Spence, why in the world does it matter? Well, we'll get to that at the very end and I hope to tie it in so you make make sense of why it matters to you, why it matters to us, and why it matters um, when it comes to the ministries of this local church. So in 1 Corinthians 12, (coughs) Paul is writing to who? The Corinthians, okay. So he is writing to the church that is there in Corinth, right? And does anybody know where, uh, if you were to take a modern day map, where Corinth would be at on the map? Greece, okay. So on the eastern side of Greece would be a modern location of where Corinth is located. So when Paul was going through what is modern day Turkey, and remember he wanted to go back up to the northeast, and that's where you had the Macedonian call, and the guy said, "Come over here." And so he went over there, and that's where you see Philippi, and that's where you see that's where you see Thessalonica, and that's where you have Corinth, all right there. Ephesus and Colossae, and um, some of the other ones are on the eastern side of what is now modern day Turkey. So Paul is writing, and uh, we we know from the writings of First and Second Corinthians, Paul wrote how many letters to the church at Corinth? Four. 
He wrote four letters to the church in Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians, he will mention the previous letter that he wrote. And then in 2 Corinthians, he will mention the letter that he wrote in between first, what we call 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Now you may say, well, why don't we have the other ones? I don't know. I don't know. It's just Paul, there was a relationship there. Now, does anybody know how long Paul stayed in Corinth his first time through in his missionary journey? Guesses? Guesses? Anybody? Do what? 18 months. 18 months. How do you know that? That's right. Okay, so it tells you. That's right. Okay, so it tells you in Acts 7 or Acts 18 that he was there and he was there for some period of time. In fact, verse 11 it says he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word among them. So what, what I'm trying to say is, is that Paul had intimate knowledge of the church in Corinth. They knew him. He knew them. So as he's writing, he is writing to a specific group of people, a specific community, and a specific church. So in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, what does he say? For just as the body is one and, and many members, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand or not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would make not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving great greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but all members have the same care for one another. If one member suffer, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then he goes on in verse 28 down through verse 31 to talk about how God has provided for the church. But my point in bringing this to your attention here in 1 Corinthians 12 is to say, look how Paul addresses this idea of this local congregation. He is making sure that they understand that even within a local congregation, there are various members, but he's using this language that we are one body. Now, He's not talking about that they in Corinth are a part of the body they are the left arm and the church there in Ephesus is the right arm and the church in Colossae is the lower leg and the church up there in Philippi is the upper torso. No, he is saying you as the church there in Corinth, you are one body. You have multiple believers composing of one body. Each believer is a part of the body and each believer has a part in the body. It's giving us this example and it's giving us this reference, this this concept, if you will, that as Paul is writing to the church, he is saying that you are a complete body of Christ. Which means that when we come together, we don't need 
other churches to make us complete body of Christ. We have a complete body of Christ here. In fact, if you go on there in verse 28, it says, And God has appointed to the, in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, and gifts, then gifts of healing, helping, administration of various kinds of tongues. He, he, is, he is making sure that they understand there in Corinth that God has brought you together. You're a body of believers. He has equipped you. He has enabled you. And He's given you all the parts you need in order to follow in faith and obedience to Him. So it doesn't mean that we are lacking. It doesn't mean that we say, well, you know what, we don't have all of these parts. We need to go somewhere else for more parts. Or we need to go somewhere else for more equipment. We need to go somewhere else for more tools. Sometimes I get aggravated because you go to some of these franchise stores and you say, I'm looking for this item or I'm looking for this. And they say, well, we don't have it here, but let's check our stores and see if we can locate it somewhere else. Well, I didn't go to one of them other stores. I came to this store. I'm looking, do you have it here? Well, Paul says, hey, church at Corinth, you have everything that God sees that you need in order to be faithful and obedient to Him. So the concept of that we are an autonomous church partly is built upon this idea that as a church here in Wellston, we are composing, consisting of a body of Christ. And as a body of Christ, all of us that God brings together, we all play a different part, but we all have a different part. And yet, God uses us as one unit to compose the body of Christ for the advancement of the kingdom and the ministry that He's called us to. Which is both fascinating and also incredibly challenging to think that all of us have a part to play. Sometimes we think that we can take or leave church. Sometimes we think that nobody mind, nobody notices if we're not at church. Sometimes we think that it really doesn't matter if I go to church or not. Sometimes we think, well, you know what? Church doesn't need me and I don't need the church. But if you get here to the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all of us need the church and the church needs all of us. And it's a vital thing that comes together that we all need to be there all doing our part. It says there, verse 26, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So Paul is treating the church in Corinth as one body, not just a part of a larger body. So part of where we get this idea of the autonomy of the local church is the way that Paul uses language as he's writing the church in Corinth. He says, listen, you have everything that you need. All the parts are there. All the equipping is there. All the gifts are there. All the services are there. You just need to function as a body of believers. Remember the game or the children's toy, Mr. Potato Head? Remember that? Yeah. Okay. So, so we got several at the house. Alright. So when you buy the Mr. Potato Head game, toy, whatever it is, the manufacturer, the toy, gives you all the parts and all the pieces that you need to assemble a fully functional Mr. Potato Head. Right? The problem is, is that you insert a two-year-old into the mix 
And now you have parts that are not in their correct place. You have pieces that are missing. And there is a whole lot of confusion and disorganization because the two-year-old started messing with what was composed, how it was composed, and how it was all put together. But now, the manufacturer, when they sold you the Mr. Potato Head toy, everything was in the box that you needed to give him his eyeballs, his ears, his arms, his legs, his hat, his lips, his nose. All of that was there. But sometimes that two-year-old will jumble up the pieces. Sometimes in the church, we start to think that we don't have enough in the church. So we need an extra program. We need an extra building. We need an extra ministry. We need an extra person. We need a different person. Or we need a different thing or a different that. And sometimes we miss that according to what Paul is telling them in Corinth, God has given them what they need. The challenge for us is is for you to know that you play a part and for you to be faithful in the part that God has given you to play. One of you in this room might be the pinky toe. Be the best pinky toe you could be. One of you in this room might be the right ear. Be the best right ear you can be. One of you in this room might be the left eyeball. Be the left be the best left eyeball you can be. But if we all stop functioning in the part and in the role that God has designed for us, then all we do is look like a two-year-old got a hold of a Mr. Potato Head, and that's when people come into the church, they see the aftermath of a two-year-old playing with Mr. Potato Head, because you have all these parts not in the right spot, not doing the right thing, all dysfunctional and disorganized, and they don't see anything that reflects the glory of God, they just see something that reflects the dysfunction of humanity. So he says be careful. So 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about this picture of us being a body of believers. Now, go from there to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, most likely in verse 22, the heading in your Bible is going to say say, wives and husbands. Or maybe it'll say something similar to that. Now, this passage, yes. The the main thrust, the main idea of the passage is wives and husbands. I'm not trying to um, miscommunicate or pull anything out of context. The passage does talk about wives and husbands. But at the same time, the passage also gives us an example of the church in relationship to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ in relationship to the church. So I'm going to read this passage and instead of you getting your uh, hackles up thinking that, oh, I'm taking a cheap shot at the role of men and women in the church and in the home, listen to the language talking about Jesus Christ and the church. So, chapter 5, verse 22 says, Paul writes again, to the church there in Ephesus. <coughs> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, 
Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Did you hear the language talking about Christ and the church? So what stuck out to you as we started in verse 22? Give me, give me some ideas of how Paul, yes, we realize he's talking about wives and husbands, but what else? how is he also presenting Christ as the church? Christ and the church. Any ideas? He's the head. He's the head. That's right. So he says right there, uh, la, 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 verse 23, Christ is the head of the church. That's right. What's another function of the relationship between Christ and the church that we see in this text? Verse 24. Yes. 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 So the church is considered the bride of Christ. Right? Okay. What's another function? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So do you see in verse 24 where it talks about the church submits to Christ? You see that in verse 24? Um, Christ loved the church and gave... Or it's not, 20, not 25, 24. Now as the church submits to Christ. So Paul gives us this language that Christ is the head, that the church submits to Christ. As Steve said, the, the church is the bride of Christ. You also get this idea that Christ cares for the church. Do you see that? Uh, la, 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 la. 23, okay. So Christ cares for the church. Give me another, give me another function that you see there. Okay. Yes. Yes. Anything else? Will you say that louder, Miss Carol? The church is subject unto Christ. That's right. That's right. Sanctifies. Sanctifies? Okay. Intimacy. Intimacy? Okay. Would you agree that the church is led by Christ? I mean, this goes back to like Colossians chapter 1 where it talks that Christ is the preeminent. He is the head of the church. So even in this language, or even in this, I, I, I see language where it says that the church is led by Christ. But then also, but then also, it gives us this idea that the church is accountable to Christ. Now how does this fit into the picture of autonomy? Well, in a system of church where we do not hold that the local church is autonomous, then what happens is is the local church is accountable and is led by a higher level of spiritual leadership. So whether it is, and uh, again, I'm not trying to speak ill, but whether you're Catholic or whether you're Episcopal or whether you're Anglican or whether you're Lutheran or whether you're Methodist, um, every pastor answers to a 
upper level, whether they call them a pastor, whether they call them a bishop, whether they call them an overseer, a presbyter, um, they all have someone else that they answer to. And so even the church then comes in and is held accountable to the one above it. Uh, my aunt lives up in Maine. And she attends a church there in Maine that has this level of... Um, organizational structure, if you will, of oversight. And so the pastor that was serving at the church where she was at, um, I guess there was some mistreatment by the people in the church towards the pastor. He filed a complaint with the... And I'm not trying to be derogatory. He filed a complaint with like the mother church. So then the mother church came in and, and conducted an investigation and found that the local church had mistreated their pastor and then therefore told that local church that they had to pay a settlement to the pastor to pay for like the damages and the wrong they had done to him. And so here we are sitting in Hennessy, Oklahoma, and he is kicked back in this recliner watching the football game over Thanksgiving. And he is telling me this story about how he had was up in Maine and this church mistreated him. And then he went and the, the mother church came in and settled on his side. The local church had to give him a settlement. And I was like, so what are you doing now? And he said, man, it covered like six months of expenses, so I pretty much have a six-month vacation. That blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, that, that, just, that just blew my mind that, I, that that is the state of things in, in some place in the United States. In relation to Ephesians 5, where it says, you know what? The church, who is the church led by Christ? Who is the church accountable to Christ? Who has oversight over the church? Christ. There is not anything else between the church and Christ. So therefore, that plays into this idea of autonomy because as a local church, we are governed by, led by, accountable to Christ. And that's the language that, that, that's the language that we see there in Ephesians chapter five. This 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 picture and this idea that you know what um, we don't have someone above us that we're responsible to. And really, at the same time, that is also a little terrifying because we answer straight to Christ for how we serve and how we care for and how we. Minister as a body of believers. We answer straight to Christ. And here in Ephesians 5, he says, be careful. Just as the wife has that connection and has that interaction and just as you have that, that dynamic between the husband and the wife, that same dynamic is at play in Christ and the church. Now we could go off on a tangent and then say, well then, then let's talk about how marriage relates to that picture. Uh, we'll say that for a different day. But when he's talking about this relationship, he is saying you have Christ as the, the figurative husband and you have the church as the figurative wife and how this dynamic works. You don't have one husband and what are they sister? What do they call it? Sister wives? What's that TV show called? Sisters Wives? You know where you got one guy and he has like eight wives? That's a conflicted household. Yeah. Or you go back, you know, remember the picture of Solomon? Remember how many wives Solomon had? Remember? remember? Two hundred? No. Seven hundred fifty concubines. Yes, concubines. That's not even wives. Seven hundred concubines. Woof. I mean that that's <laughs> That's a lot of Maybelline. I mean, that's just... Whoa. <laughs> just 
Can't even imagine. Can't even imagine, okay? So you don't so you don't see this picture. Right here, you have this idea that you have one Christ and you have one church, right? Now, do we understand that there are different churches? Yes, we understand there are different churches. We understand there's a church in Wilson, and there's a church in Chandler, there's a church in Luther. I, now, how does God, how does Christ work that? He, he's Christ. He can, he, can, he can do that. But it doesn't give us the impression, it doesn't give us the picture that the Christ, that the church then has to submit to another form of oversight or leadership before Christ. So that's Ephesians chapter 5. Now go to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Here's another picture that I would say to make a case for autonomy of the local church. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 1. We're going to look at verse 1 down through verse 4. Another case. So I exhort the elders among you. This is one of the reasons why I have encouraged and why I have um, pressed that we as a church would uh, move into that, that picture and that um, that model of a plurality of pastors and elders because of, of examples like here in 1 Peter 5 and 1. I exhort the elders among you. So as Peter is writing, he is writing to the uh, group of believers there in what is modern day Turkey. And as he's writing to them, he's saying, I exhort the elders. It's in the plural form. In fact, most of the time you see elders, which is synonymous for pastors or preachers, most of the time it is usually in the plural when he's writing. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, you go back up there to verse 2 and verse 3. And I spent a little time looking through the different translations, English translations that are out there. And I think I covered all of them. When you get to verse 2 and verse 3, and I realize the translations may be worded a little bit different. Does anybody have a translation where flocks is in the plural? Does anybody? If I did my homework right, nobody's going to have a translation. So in both verse 2 and verse 3, it gives the singular rendering of the word flock. So when he's talking about the elders, he said, listen, pastor, pastor team, elder team, be, uh, be a shepherd over the flock among you. It's, it's a singular form. He's talking about that there is not only a plurality of pastors, but there is a singular flock that they then have responsibility and oversight to uh, lead and to serve and to watch over in their spiritual walk. Now let me let me put it to you like this. If we were talking and I told you that I had a flock of sheep and I had a flock of sheep north of town on the place where my family and I live and I also had a, a flock of sheep that I've got located on some family land out there in Elk City. I've also got a flock of sheep on some family land located up in Tulsa. I've also got a flock of sheep located on some family land out in Amarillo, Texas. Would it, be, would it be appropriate for me to say that all four of those are one flock? Well, you would say you have four different flocks in four different locations. So the concept of saying, well, you know what, I have one flock, but they're all scattered around, just doesn't, just doesn't logically go with the flow of what we're trying to say. 
So when he's saying to the shepherd, to the to the under shepherds here, so Christ is the chief shepherd, the, the pastor, the elder is the under shepherd, when he's calling them, he tells them to exercise oversight and to serve what? The flock. Singular. The flock of God that is among you. This idea that he says you are to shepherd the flock. I do not know of a place in Scripture, you might know and you can correct me, I don't know of a place in Scripture where he talks about these uh, pastors, these elders, these overseers as shepherding flocks in the multiple or shepherding in multiple congregations. And you may say, well, Spence, 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 what about Paul? Paul, yes, on his missionary journeys, helped start churches. On his missionary journeys, he helped um, advise and counsel churches. That's why we see so much of our New Testament is written by Paul. But don't miss the point that Paul was also an apostle. But when it comes to like examples of like John, John went, the apostle John, he went and pastored the church in Ephesus. You have Timothy pastoring the church in Ephesus. You have Titus pastoring a local church. So you have these examples of these individuals going. Now you may say, well, Paul, what about Paul? What about Paul? Well, you have one example of one guy doing missionary work and ministering to multiple churches, but you never see where Paul claims that he was the pastor or the sheep or the under shepherd of all of those churches simultaneously. Yes, he went around and he helped minister to this church and that church and that church and that church and that church. And yes, he gave leadership. And yes, he gave instruction. And yet he gave, yes, he gave insight. But we never see where he said, I pastored all of them at the same time. So in 1 Peter 5, the language, the example that Peter is saying is that when it comes to the pastors and elders, they are to shepherd the the flock, the, the individual, the individual body of Christ using the first Corinthians twelve kind of language. Last one. Revelation chapter two. Revelation chapter two. We just looked at this. If you were up there with me on Wednesday nights, we just looked at this. We looked at Revelation two and Revelation three. Who is doing the writing in Revelation 2? John. John. Alright. Who is doing the dictating? If I'm using that word correctly. Who's telling John what to write? Jesus Christ. Christ. So that's why you see some of your headings will be in Revelation at the very beginning. The revelation to John. It was John received a revelation from Christ about things that are still yet to come. So Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, I think it's important for us to understand that yes, John is writing it, but he is being told what to write by Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ comes to John. He's on the island of Patmos and he says, go ahead and I want you to write. In fact, you see there in chapter 1 and verse 11, he says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. So he says, John, I am going to tell you what to write and this is what you write. So, chapter 2 and chapter 3, John sits down and writes under the inspiration and through the dictation of Jesus Christ, writes how many letters? Seven. Seven. Okay, he writes seven letters to whom? Or who? Whom? Who? 
individual churches. That's right. So he sits down. He writes seven letters to seven churches. Now, why do I think that's important? I think that's important because Christ saw them all as being individual churches. Now, one of the things that's unique is all the individual churches were in in individual locations. But as he's writing, he is writing to different churches. And he's addressing different things in every one of the churches. Out of the seven churches, is it all criticism? Is it all praise? No. So what do we get? Five and two, right? Five and two. So five what? Bad ones. Five bad ones, five criticism, right? Five, five, five negative feedbacks and two positive feedbacks, right? Right? Okay? So, so as he's writing, he's writing to seven individual churches, seven churches addressing seven different settings, circumstances, conditions. Who is doing the writing? Christ is writing to the church. Christ speaks directly to the church. And he, uh, by the language that is used there in Revelation 2 and 3, the churches were accountable directly back to Christ. So you say, well, Spence, can you make a case for the autonomy of the local church? I can make a case. Now, I don't have a chapter and verse that says, each church thou shalt be autonomous. I don't have a chapter and verse for that. But we have pictures, we have examples, we have principles, we have models that we see through Scripture that give us a base for how we are to govern as a church. Now, how then does that how then does that impact where we're at now? Well, we, here in Wellston, First Baptist Church in Wellston, we are part of, as I've told you before, we are part of organizations. But when we talk about that, we say that we voluntarily or we freely associate or affiliate with the Pottawatomie-Lincoln County Association. 66 churches come together. They collectively come together to um, pursue after missions, to help one another in engaging the lost in this community and around this area. And so while we we, uh, voluntarily affiliate, we are not obligated to have to do anything or have to give anything or have to uh, agree to anything. And then beyond that, you have the um, Oklahoma Baptist, Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma. Um, I don't know the exact number of how many churches comprise that, but we voluntarily affiliate with them. Why do we do that? We do that because there are things that we can do collectively that would be much harder for us to do individually. Whether it is supporting missions, or whether it is funding camps, or whether it is working on um, parachurch ministries where people can serve and people can help out. So like the transitional program that this church went to, went through um, as they were in, in between pastors, that is largely, largely funded by the cooperative program that is the, the work of the churches coming together, working together um, for a common purpose and a common good. And then above they get that, you go to the Southern Baptist Convention. Every church in the Southern Baptist Convention is identified as being an autonomous local body of believers, but they realize there are things we can do together that are easier to do together than they are doing apart. But then you come back from the national and go back to the local and you say, but when it comes to the local church, we do not have to answer or do what someone else tells us to do. We are accountable to Christ. We are led by Christ and we answer to Christ. So you can see some denominations and some walks of faith where, and I don't want to try to oversimplify it, but on Monday morning, tomorrow morning, um, I am told what will be the content of the sermon for this coming Sunday. 
So all the churches all have the same content. Or there are some walks of denominations and faiths where I wake up tomorrow morning and I get on the phone call with the... uh, uh, leader, spiritual leader above me and that spiritual leader will then tell me whether I am allowed to do this or whether I'm not allowed to do that. Uh, There's some walks and some some denominations where a person serves for a season of time and then comes the uh, spiritual oversight and comes in and goes, hey, you know what? Appreciate what you've done, but we're going to move you. Not because the church is unhappy or not because you're not doing a good work, but because I've decided I want you someplace else. And so there's kind of this moving around back and forth. And then the church is pretty much going, we only get whoever the ones above us give us to pastor. And so the church doesn't even have input necessarily or any kind of uh, ability to decide on who they who, who even pastors them. And so sometimes you have these denominations, but here in the Baptist distinctive, we say no. We are a body of Christ. And God has given us what we need To be faithful and obedient to Him. I don't need someone to call me tomorrow morning to tell me what the text that we are going to study as a congregation next Sunday has to be. The Holy Spirit is sufficient. Amen. God's Word is enough. We do not need someone to come in and to tell us when we can minister, how we can minister, and where we can minister. This church... Being spirit-filled and Christ-led is able to live out that faithfulness to Christ. And so, not only is it incredibly um, freeing to think that, you know what? We as a church, we're autonomous. We can make those decisions and move out in those directions. It is also incumbent upon us to realize that that carries responsibility. Because we can't blame someone else or something else. So the autonomy of the local church matters when it comes to how we view our responsibility and how it views our ability to minister to those around us. So the autonomy of the local church is a distinctive that sets us apart, especially in the Baptist tradition, from other walks of faith. Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that anybody that doesn't practice autonomy, they're bad or they're wrong or they're lost and going to hell. I'm just saying that the way we approach Scripture, we believe that there is a biblical case. We believe that there is a principle, a spiritual principle in place. And we believe that we are on, are on good standing to say, based upon the revelation of Scripture... Each church is then to be an autonomous body living out um, under the Lordship of Christ, being led by Christ, filled by the Spirit, um, obedient and faithful and responsible to God Himself. Questions?